the serpent's head. Now the serpent was given the rule by the original man and woman, Adam and Eve. So the serpent is ruling the world, and we're waiting for the time when this promised seed will strike the serpent's head, restore the rule of the earth back to God's image bearers. And along the way, we have seen that God chose a select line of people, starting with Abraham and going on down, and he made various covenants with Abraham and his descendants. He made five covenants in total with the nation Israel. Four of them are eternal and irrevocable. Only the Mosaic covenant was conditional and intended for a set period of time. The rest of them remain unfulfilled, to be fulfilled in the future. So we're still waiting for the Abrahamic covenant, which promised Israel all the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. We are waiting for the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled, where a descendant of David, and David's line would be an eternal person who rules on an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. And we are still waiting for the new covenant, likewise, where God will grant his spirit to the entire Israelite population. All Jews will be saved, the Messiah will rule, and there will be peace on the world. All of these things must be fulfilled. And then we, I'm sorry, we should yeah, sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, uh, next one. Then we moved on to Daniel, where in the visions of King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, we saw that there's a series of Gentile kingdoms that must take place. So after the last Israelite king in 586 BC was dethroned, God has put in place a series of Gentile kingdoms to rule the world, starting with Babylon, moving down to Rome. And we could say the feet uh, is Rome part two. That's, that's still future. And if you, you missed the sermon on Daniel, we went into some detail on how that all works out. But basically, during that time, there was no Israelite kingdom. The Jews were waiting for these promises. They were waiting for the Messiah. And at last, Jesus Christ came. And last week, we looked at the book of Matthew, which explained that Jesus came and offered the kingdom to Israel. He offered the kingdom to Israel. But they rejected both the king and the kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom has been postponed to a future generation. And we now are left with this intervening period of time that we call the church age. But after the church age comes to an end, there are still prophetic things that must happen. And, you know, we've been here in the church age for about 2,000 years. We don't know when it will come to an end. But in Genesis 3.15, there's a battle, and there's hostility between the serpent and the promised seed. In, in the grand narrative of Scripture, that will reach a climax in what we call the tribulation, the great tribulation. I'm sorry. I should have been giving you cues. I'm so sorry. But let's go. Let's go forward. Yeah. Great tribulation. Now, the Bible has more to say about the tribulation than the time of Christ's early life, earthly life. So, if you put a document together with everything that the Bible says about the tribulation, and that the length of that document would be longer than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all put together. So it is a big deal in the Bible. In fact, the Bible gives it many different titles. It is called the tribulation, the indignation, the time of Jacob's trouble, 
the day of Israel's calamity, the time of trouble, Yahweh's strange work, the overflowing scourge, the day of vengeance, the day of wrath, the day of distress, the day of waste, the day of desolation, the day of darkness, the day of gloominess, the day of clouds, the day of thick darkness, the day of the trumpet, and the day of alarm. And that's only the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's called the day of the Lord. It's called the wrath of God. It's called the hour of trial, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. It's called the, the wrath to come, the hour of judgment, and the great tribulation. So this is a very, very significant time in the whole narrative of the Bible, where things are reaching a climax in this hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, there are hundreds of individual events that the Bible tells about in this period of time. We don't have time for all that. We've got to summarize. And so today, we're going to focus on six major events or characteristics. We're going to look at three heavenly events, the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, and the marriage of the Lamb, and three earthly events, the judgments of God, the reign of Antichrist, and revival and martyrdom on earth. Now, each of these is worthy of a study, a lengthy study on its own, but we will have to be quick about it today. So first, we'll talk about the rapture of the church. And this is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says this, For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is probably the most explicit rapture passage we have, but there are many other places we could look to learn more about this. But if we just jump back to verse 15, let's take a look at this, that this is not something that Paul just made up. He says, this is by the word of the Lord. So the Lord revealed this mystery to Paul. Notice also that Paul says, we who are alive and remain. Paul fully expected that this would happen in his lifetime. And that's where we get this idea that the, the event of the rapture is what we call imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. And so right from Paul's day in the first century, Every generation of Christians has thought, ah, today could be the day. This could be the day. The rapture could happen now. And in verse 16, we see that there's, oh, sorry, previous one. Yeah. There is a shout from heaven. There is the voice of an archangel. There's the trumpet of God. Now, if you've seen any of these rapture movies, often the rapture is portrayed as a silent event, people just vanish, poof, and, and there's not a lot. But let me ask you, how loud do you think the trumpet of God is? How loud do you think the shout of the Lord would be? I mean, when I think of the trumpet of God, I'm thinking when you have those massive subwoofers and it's like a pulsing bass and it just your ribs vibrate, <laughs> the sound goes through you, I'm thinking the whole world is going to hear this. Uh, in fact, nobody's going to do anything else. It'll be so loud and so distracting. Everyone's going to know something 
remarkable is going on. And then verse 17, if we jump to the next slide, we who are alive, who remain, in other words, the Christians who are alive at the time of the rapture, will be caught up together in the clouds. And we will meet them uh, in the air. So there's two waves, if you will. The first wave is those who are dead in Christ, those who have died somewhere between Acts chapter 2 and are believers in the Lord until when the rapture happens. They are resurrected, and they go up first. And then it seems there's a second wave, the Christians that are alive at that time, they get instant transformation into their glorified bodies, and they go up, and they meet the first wave and the Lord in the air. And that seems to be how it happens here. And verse 18 says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, there was an article by CNN, this bastion of truth, excuse me as I roll my eyes, they had this article last September that says, rapture anxiety can take a lifetime to get over. I'm talking about how people have been so traumatized by this doctrine of the rapture that the stress and trauma uh, can take a lifetime to get over. Well, okay, okay. <laughs> but what we see is this is a comfort. Comfort one another with these words. And so if we forward, fast forward to the next slide, the rapture of the church is what we call an imminent, signless event. So there's nothing that has to happen prophetically before the rapture could happen. In fact, it could happen before this sermon ends, and maybe some of you are hoping it will. <laughs> but the fact that it's imminent should give us a sense of urgency. You know, if, if uh, mom and dad have a teenager, and they say, teenager, we are going out for the weekend, and we're going to come back on Saturday night, 9 p.m. No parties, no fooling around, no shenanigans. We're coming back at 9 o'clock on Saturday. What has the teenager just heard? <laughs> I have until Saturday at 8 p.m. to goof off, and then I'll get cleaning up. <laughs> but if mom and dad say, well, we're going on a trip, and we don't know how long we'll be, we could come back at any moment, no fooling around, no horseplay, then they say, Okay, <laughs> I, I can't be caught doing what I don't want to be caught doing. So there's a difference. So the fact that the Lord could imminently come is uh, not only does it give a sense of urgency, but a sense of importance to how we spend each day. It could be our last day. We don't know. So it helps us to focus. Uh, second thing, when we think of the rapture, we want to think rapture equals resurrection. This is when the dead in Christ are given their resurrection bodies. And those who are alive, as I said, they will be instantly transformed into glorified bodies without having to go through death. It is the translation, uh, sorry, it is for all church age believers, so those who have believed from the time of Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, until the end, uh, whenever that could be. Today, it could be a thousand years from now, we don't know. And it is the translation of the church from the earth to heaven. And this will bring the church age to a close. The church age does have a close, and then there will be other events after that. And lastly, it is the blessed hope of believers. That's what Paul wrote to Titus, his apprentice. And so a question I might have for you is, 
do you see the rapture as the blessed hope? And if not, why not? You know, I'm surprised by the number of Christians I have met who have told me, you know, I really hope the rapture isn't soon. I really don't want the Lord to come. And I wonder, well, why not? Uh, is it possible that there's some kind of idol in your life? Are you cherishing your life, your, your priorities, more than the Lord's? Um, I don't know. It's something that we could all think about. So that's the rapture of the church. After that, we come to the judgment seat of Christ. So the church goes with the Lord, and the next event on the prophetic calendar is the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.12 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body, in accordance with what he has done, whether good or worthless. Now, some English translations will say good or evil, or good or bad. The Greek word does not mean evil. Uh, it does not mean a moral thing. So we're not being judged for sin at this judgment. Because for the Christian, all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been judged with Christ on the cross. It's already taken care of. But at issue here is how fruitful and how faithful were you in your Christian life? So it's not about sin, it's about usefulness. How faithful did you live? You, you know, if you think of the last 24 hours, just think of all the things you've done. And I think intuitively, we all know that some of the activities we did were more spiritually beneficial than others. Right? We, we recognize that. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul will tell us more about this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built remains, he will receive a reward. But, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as only through the fire. Paul here is painting a similar picture of this judgment seat of Christ. And so you can imagine everything you do from the time you get saved until either you die or get raptured, everything you spent your life doing will be put on some altar and set on fire. And things that were not useful for the Lord, not useful in a spiritual sense, are this wood, hay, and straw, the things that get burned up. And notice that it says, his work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So there is a loss. Now, it's not a loss of salvation. Everyone who's at the judgment seat of Christ is saved. But it seems that his, his salvation is as only through fire. So like just barely escaping the flames of hell, if you will. But those who have worked hard and been faithful, will have, the fire will reveal gold and silver precious stones. Now, that, that's not literal gold. It's, it's a picture of what is valuable. And we can understand those as being eternal rewards. So rewards for faithfulness in this life that we will get to keep for all eternity. And I believe that on this day, there will be some sadness. We see 
these scary words, he will suffer loss. And so I think many Christians on this day will look back at their earthly lives with a sense of regret. Maybe spending too much time on worldly pleasures or their own priorities rather than the things of God. As I've said, we intuitively know certain activities are more spiritually valuable than others. So it's a good reminder for all of us that we'll all be here someday if you're a believer. And it's a good reminder to, to stay focused on what's important in, in, the, in the Lord. So that's the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, let's move on to the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 19 verse 7 says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. Throughout the New Testament, the church is given this picture with Christ, where Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. And we are being prepared for this glorious wedding celebration that will happen in heaven. So after the rapture, after the judgment seat of Christ, will be the marriage of the Lamb. Now the Bible actually doesn't say a lot about this topic, so we don't know what it's going to be like. We just know that it's going to happen. And you know, if you, if you think of earthly weddings, you know, a few years ago in the UK, Prince William got married to Kate Middleton. And their wedding cost $34 million. I'm sure it was a grand affair, but I don't think it will be anything compared to this glorious wedding that God the Father is preparing for God the Son and his bride. I mean, I think most of us agree that weddings are a good thing. It's a sense of joy and hope for the future. Most people like weddings. This is the wedding you don't want to miss. This is the wedding of all weddings, and you want to be there. So this concludes the three heavenly events that we'll look at this morning. The rapture, the judgment seat of Christ, and the marriage of the Lamb. But while all those good things are happening in heaven, hell is literally breaking out on earth. So let's transition to these three events on earth. The first is the judgments of God. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, the closing book of the Bible, starting in chapter 6, we find these seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and all of these, each of these, is an element of the Lamb's wrath upon the world, a time of great tribulation and judgment upon what Revelation calls the earth dwellers, those who have their minds set on the earth. Now, last week we were going through Matthew, and I, I skimmed over Matthew 24 because I said we'd touch base this week. Now, in Matthew 24, his disciples had asked him, what are the signs of your coming? What are the signs of the end of the age? And he, the Lord will give a list of things. And what's interesting about this is if you compare the events in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 and 7, the same events in the same order show up. So I think it's a, a pretty good indication that Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 are talking about the same period of time. So what kind of signs are we looking at? Well, false Christs, antichrists, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, death and martyrdom, 
and the gospel that gets preached to the entire world. Now, many Christians through the ages have read these passages and said, oh, those are signs for the church age. But I believe that's actually a mistake. Uh, in the church age, there are no signs. We don't have any signs of the rapture. We don't have any signs of the end of the church age. These are all referring to what will happen in the tribulation period. But what will happen? Uh, if we jump to the next slide, we have judgments on the natural world and the heavens. We, for example, just to summarize some things that will happen, the heavenly bodies will cease their normal functions. The sun will stop shining. The moon will stop shining. The stars will fall to the earth, however you want to understand that. Something goes wrong with the heavens. On earth, the wind will cease to blow anywhere. The wind will just stop. I mean, if you can imagine the problems with our climate, if the wind doesn't blow, all kinds of problems, uh, I mean, all kinds of things depend on the wind as it is right now. Bodies of water will be turned to blood. Those that aren't turned to blood will be poisoned. The vegetation of the earth will be burned up. The trees and the green grass burned up. There will be earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanic eruptions. And if I can quote one of my favorite pastors, he says, if you think we are destroying the earth, just wait till you see what the Lord does in the tribulation. So all the things that God created in Genesis 1, called them good, that is what he himself is going to bring to it, a destruction. He will bring that. Second, we will have extensive human evil on earth. The restraining influence of the Lord and the restraining influence of the church will be removed from the earth. And so as a judgment upon wicked people, the Lord will allow them to be almost fully as wicked as they want to be. So there'll be less restraining wickedness. Did you know that just by being in the world, the church is a restraining influence? To, to borrow a, a cultural example from America, if all of the Christians, the born-again Christians, were taken out of this world, I mean, who would fight for the rights of the unborn children? I mean, everybody else wants to slaughter them. It seems that Christians are, are the ones standing for righteousness, holding back wickedness, but the church will not be there at this time. And so human wickedness will grow. And in the book of Revelation, we'll talk about how they're extensive in murder and sorcery and idolatry and uh, sexual immorality and all kinds of wickedness that they love to do. Third, there will be extensive supernatural evil. Satan and his fallen angels will be expelled from the heavenly realm. And that happens in Revelation chapter 12. So it seems that for the time being, they, they do have access to the heavenly realm. They will be sent down to earth only. So they'll be here. And Re Revelation will also talk about demons and angels that are trapped within the earth that are released as well. So you have Satan coming down and demons coming up. And it will literally be hell on earth during this time. And if all of that were not bad enough, the next event is the reign of Antichrist. The reign of the
Called the foolish shepherd, the son of perdition, the lawless one, the beast, the one who exalts himself, and the one who proclaims himself to be God, and the one who makes him desolate. Those are, are the actual biblical titles that he has rather than Antichrist per se. And there are over a hundred passages in the Bible that talk about the Antichrist and, and his career, kind of what he will do, what he will be like, and basically he will rise up from some form of a revived Roman Empire. We talked about this when we looked at Daniel, the ten toes of Daniel 2 and the ten horns of Daniel 7. Somehow the world will be arranged into these organization of ten rulers. And this Antichrist will rise up. He's not one of the ten, but he will absorb them. He will overtake them, overpower them, beginning insignificantly, but then becoming all-powerful. He will be unique and unusually intelligent. He will be physically impressive. He will be a great orator, persuasive, boastful, blasphemous. In other words, he is Satan's best. He is the Superman, quote unquote, the best that Satan can possibly offer. In Daniel 7.23, it says this, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and trample it down and crush it. In other words, this is talking about worldwide tyranny, where this Antichrist will rule the world with an iron fist. Back in Revelation chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there. Revelation chapter 13. This is how the Antichrist is described. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, where have we seen that before? Daniel 7. And seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. If you recall the vision of Daniel 7, leopard, lion, bear. So it's borrowing that same imagery from the book of Daniel. And to the dragon, uh, excuse me, to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the dragon is the serpent, Satan, and he's giving his beast, the Antichrist, his power and authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So he's going to deceive the whole world. The whole world is going to follow after this Antichrist. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Wow. They're worshipping Satan, they're worshipping Antichrist, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And the whole tribulation period is seven years. We know that from Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And the second half is when the Antichrist really comes to full power at this time. And that's what the 42 months is talking about. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. Okay, so he has power over those who come to faith during this period. And really, that's what we read in Daniel, that the little horn 
would prevail over the saints, that until the very end, the serpent has the upper hand, uh, and that we are the sheep to be slaughtered. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, in the book of, of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. That's talking about believers. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So through the, the martyrdom, the saints are to be faithful, persevere. And by the way, where is this Antichrist ruling from? Well, he will be in God's holy city, Jerusalem, in a rebuilt temple on God's holy mountain, the Temple Mount, false temple, of course, and he will be there being worshipped as God by the very people of God, who God had chose, the Israel, uh, Israelite people. And so there he is, ruling the world, being worshipped, and, and, and slaughtering the saints, and this goes back to Genesis 3.15, the, the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And basically, the serpent will have achieved everything he wanted. There he is, being worshipped as God by God's people in God's city, in the temple. It's amazing. But thankfully, his time is limited to 42 months. Thankfully. But speaking of bloodlust, this brings us to the sixth and final point, which is revival and martyrdom. So first, revival. In Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now this verse, I think, has uh, erroneously been applied to the church age, that if we can just get enough missionaries to go to every single nation, that will bring about the end of the world, and Christ will come back. But this actually gets fulfilled in the tribulation period. Uh, notice it's in Matthew 24, which is all about the tribulation. And this, uh, the, the answer, the fulfillment of this verse happens in Revelation chapter 14. Jump to the next slide. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So by Revelation 14, we have an angel preaching the gospel to every nation. Before that, in Revelation 7, we will be introduced to 144,000 Jewish evangelists. So imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls who are totally and solely devoted to mission activity, and they can't be killed during this seven-year period. They go out to the world. They go out to the nations. And in Revelation 11, we're introduced to two witnesses who prophesy in Jerusalem, and they testify of the gospel as well. So we have these 144,000, we have the two witnesses, and we have an angel preaching the gospel. So everybody at that time will have the chance to hear the message of salvation. And we know that many will come to believe, because in Revelation 7, if you're still there in Revelation, 
This is Revelation 7, verse 9. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand. So notice that they're there before the throne of God. They're in heaven. But that means that they had to be killed. Uh, in fact, John is having this vision, and he's going to ask, who are these people? Who are these people? And the answer will be in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So there will be a great revival of faith, but the bloodlust of the Antichrist will be so insatiable that many of them will be slaughtered at this time. In fact, in Revelation 12, verse 7, it will say this, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her seed who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Satan, in chapter 12, he's kicked out of heaven, down to earth, and he's so enraged, he knows his time is short. And so he, ta he takes out his war against, notice it, the rest of the woman's seed, which takes us right back to Genesis 3.15. Two teams, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, in, in the plural sense. So that battle is, is going on. That hostility of Genesis 3.15 continues right to the end. In Revelation 13.10, it says, if anyone is going into captivity, to captivity he goes. Anyone is to be killed by the sword, by the sword he is to be killed. Here is the patient endurance and the faith of the saints. So this is going to happen. But the Lord will call his people at this time to endure this martyrdom, endure captivity with patience, with faith, and with, uh, yeah, with patient endurance and, and with faith. In chapter 17, carrying on, it will say, and I saw the woman, uh, this is not the good woman, this is the harlot now, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So this, this slaughter of believers is going to be so extensive. Worldwide bloodshed, and while the Bible doesn't give us a percentage or a number, what it seems is that the vast majority of believers in the tribulation will not survive. There will be some who survive to the end, but that would be a relatively small percentage there. So let's, let's back up and summarize these six events. We've looked at three heavenly events, the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, and the marriage of the Lamb. While on earth, the major events happening are the judgments of God, the reign of Antichrist, and revival, and martyrdom. Now this is terrible news for the world, this time of tribulation that is coming. The tribulation is literally hell on earth. It, is, it will be the worst time in human history imaginable. But there's good news. At the end of those seven years, the Lord Jesus is coming back. And we will be coming back with him. Well, let's, let's think about the so what from all of this. 
Well, from these earthly events that we're looking at, you know, if, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you do not want to go through this time. Uh, as I've just said, this will be the worst time in human history, absolute tyr tyranny, bloodshed, wickedness, demonic activity, literally hell on earth. And so you don't want to go through that. But if you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is the God-man, the divine human sacrifice for your sin, who died on the cross, was buried, resurrected, and died in your place, he will save you from your sins. He will grant you hope of the resurrection and eternal life. And you can escape this hell on earth, followed by hell in hell, if that makes sense. You can escape both those things by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus. So if you have questions about that or think you might want to, please feel free to come talk with me after the service. Or if you're not ready at this time, feel free to call me or message me on the church phone number, and I'd be happy to speak with you. As for believers, what we might take away from today is, are you rapture ready? Are you living with the anticipation that today could be the day. Today might be our last day. Do you see the rapture as your blessed hope? And if not, why not? It might be worth doing some self-reflection to think about that. Uh, for non-believers, thinking about the rapture, if this happens, if it should happen in our lifetime, the world is going to make up some kind of excuse. Who knows what it is? Alien abduction, radiation poisoning, <laughs> interdimensional portals, whatever. But you have to know it's a lie. What has really happened is the Lord has raptured his church to heaven. Now, there will be some people left behind who claim to be Christians. So they'll say, oh, it's not the rapture because we're still here. They aren't the true Christians. The true church has been taken. So just be aware of those things should you find yourself left behind. And when we think about the judgment seat of Christ, back to believers, it is worth evaluating your life. How do you spend your time, your talents, your, your money? What priorities do you have, in other words? When you, and everything you have, uh, what you've done in your life is put on that altar and put the test in the fire. What is gonna be left? You know, is it gonna be this wood, hay, and straw that gets burned up? Or is it going to be revealing of gold, silver, precious stones, these eternal rewards that you will keep forever? So lastly, just zooming out to, again, the, the big picture of the story of Scripture. We've been looking at this slide right from the beginning. But what I've added in today is this green row, the climax. The climax of the story happens in Revelation 6 to 19, where the Great Tribulation happens, and it's the epitome of this hostility between the serpent and the promised seed, the singular, between the Antichrist, and, or sorry, I should say, between Satan and Christ, and also the epitome of conflict between, collectively, the serpent seed and the woman's seed. So it's all coming to a climax here. And just when everything seems 
the darkest possible. Antichrist is going to win. The believers are going to be slaughtered. Dot, dot, dot. Come back next week. Find out how it ends. So let's pray, and we'll invite Lauren back up. Lord, we thank, thank you so much that you have revealed prophetic truth in your word. Thank you that we have a blessed hope. Father, we pray that you would make us grow in our anticipation and hope of this time of your coming, that we would long for it, that we would be ready for it, living in light of the future that we know is coming. Father, we plead for the unbelieving world, that you might bring them to salvation, that they would not have to endure the terrible time of the tribulation, but that they would come to Christ now and escape the tragedy of everything that will happen during the tribulation period. We thank you for the hope and the comfort that we have in your words. We thank you that you win in the end. Maranatha, Lord, please come quickly. Amen.